If you mention the name of Dr. Todd Capistrant to anyone in the OMM community, they will immediately think of FDM. In this episode, Dr. Capistrant shares how the treatment of his own tennis elbow with FDM led him from working in a thriving urgent care to a full-time OMT practice, seeing his patients through the lens of FDM. Hope you all enjoy this episode. Hey, Dr. Capistrant. Hello. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Your very busy schedule to talk to us a little bit about your experience with FDM and how you made your transition from family medicine to OMT full-time and full-time, I guess, dedication to the fascial distortion model. So thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start out the podcast. I usually start out asking some questions just to get to know you as a person. So for our audience, if you could just tell us a little bit about where you're from, a hobby outside of medicine, and then maybe a movie, a documentary, or a book recommendation that you have. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I was originally from St. Paul, Minnesota, born and raised there. I went to undergraduate uh, college at the University of Minnesota and took a year off, went to northern Minnesota, spent my time up there trying to figure out what I was going to do. My father was a physician. He was an MD neurologist and worked his tail off. And I really wasn't excited about the medical profession because in my mind, that's part of the reason he was working so hard and overworked was medicine. And so mm -hmm. I kind of entered the, the final stages of college thinking I wouldn't do medicine. I had a dual degree, a biology degree, and then a chemistry degree uh, from two different branches of the University of Minnesota. And I found out I could graduate a year early if I dropped my chemistry degree. So I said, bye. <laughs> And uh, I moved to northern Minnesota, lived uh, one portage away from the Boundary Waters and was living the dream of being, you know, on uh, 10 feet from a lake in a 1940s trapper's camp and <laughs> nice. just loving, loving existence. And I had basically applied to medical school to keep my parents off my back. And <laughs> then I got accepted and uh, I got accepted into Des Moines, uh, Des Moines University, and uh, it was, I interviewed at several places and MD and DO schools. And the thing that captured me right away about the DO school was I felt at home. I walked mm -hmm. in, you're the awkward people at the interview in the suit and tie and nobody else in the place has a suit and tie on. And you know, <laughs> it, it just feel so awkward. And immediately yeah. the Boyne students were like, hey, come on over, have a seat. We're just chatting. And, you know, they were just so much a part of um, it was like, obviously a family of, of everybody's got to get through this together. Yeah. And when I was at, um, university of Minnesota, it was a very different feel. It was a very much, I'm going to stab you and step on your carcass to get to the next level. Mm, okay. And, and I had gone to school with all of the people that I would have been applying for medical school for. So that was not helping my decision process. And, uh, but in, when I, when I found uh, the DO um, schools to be so receptive, it really opened my eyes. And the reason my dad pushed me towards the osteopathic profession is a neurologist. He routinely saw musculoskeletal issues that were not neurology. And at that time, and probably it continues to be, when, when medicine doesn't know what the heck is going on, they refer and they refer to specialists. So back pain, neck pain, any tingling, he would get these things. And he's like, this isn't neurologic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he had a close friend that was in Minneapolis, right between Minneapolis and St. Paul, that he, uh, he would refer all of his patients to, and he was an osteopath. And oh, wow. so these people that he knew it wasn't neurology based, he would send them over and, and uh, that, that doc would fix them up. And oh, so, yeah, so I got into that osteopathic program we had an absolutely outstanding faculty um so your uh, dad wanted you to go to osteopathic medical school rather than md school because yeah, of this position he knew that he knew that i would love the hands-on piece he knew mm -hmm. that that would keep me happy yeah uh, in, and he just he knew that fit me and he had confidence in the in the osteopathic profession as a tool to helping all these patients I see. So when I when I uh, 
I got to Des Moines and we had outstanding OMM faculty, some really great teachers. Um, I think that was what captivated me early was the good teachers. And then I had a sister-in-law who was extremely pregnant when I went home for a visit and, yeah. you know, had learned nothing in our first year, uh, in that first <laughs> few months of OMM, you know, the very few basic things. Yeah. And she was having a horrible time with low back pain. And I said, well, you mind if I try something? And I think she was like 35 weeks or 30, maybe 25 weeks. She was probably her third trimester, shorter lady, but she was just miserable. Yeah. So I did a few things and treated her sacrum and didn't hear back from her. So I called and I said, so, you know, she was ready to quit work and mm -hmm. just felt terrible. And I called her a couple of weeks later. I said, Hey, how you doing? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. Back pain's gone. I'm back at work. Wow. And I went, what? <laughs> I'm like, I've been in med school for like three months and I had a positive impact. She's like, Oh my God. Yeah. That was that, that took care of all the pain. Do you remember how you treated her? Her sacrum? I, One of the big things was the ischial tuberosity spread. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so she must have been early enough in pregnancy that she was, no, she was laying on her back, I bet. So she was on her back. We did the ischial tube spread, did mm -hmm. a little bit of muscle energy, counter strain, and got her sacrum moving, you know, which yeah. to this day is continues to be pivotal in any pregnant woman's back pain. Sure. And, and so, you know, for me, that's one of my, my feelings about the ghouls having clinical experiences for the students is because when they see or are able to perform a life-changing treatment like that, yeah. um, you got to have an early success with OMM. If you have an early success with OMM, whether it's for yourself or family, you're hooked. I mean, because it's one of the most powerful things you can do for people. You, you fix something that is keeping them from living the life they want. Mm -hmm. And all of a, all of a sudden, uh, you're inspired. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's one of the things that's such a great piece of OMM. You can write as many prescriptions as you want. You can do as much imaging as you want. But you really don't get to see the, the powerful return on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so... I, yeah, I enjoyed OMM throughout my school. I was I was lucky to go to that same guy that my dad referred all the patients to. Uh, mm -hmm. We had a four month rotation. It was a core primary care elective. He was a family doc, and did a lot of OMM. And so I did a four month rotation with him. And in that time, I did about six hundred manipulations. Wow. Uh, he he learned that I loved doing that, so he set up yeah. a separate schedule. It was obviously a different time. Yeah, uh, he set up a different schedule. He'd walk in, talk to the patient, leave. I'd treat him. He'd come back, make sure everything was good, treat anything I couldn't get or missed. And then I just kept seeing patients all day. And then when he had something interesting on his family medicine schedule, like thyroiditis or CHF or diabetes, mm -hmm. he pulled me into the room and yeah. we'd have those conversations. So wow. I got to residency, family medicine residency with a lot of OMM exposure clinically and then in our family medicine residency which i did it back in uh, st paul at the university of minnesota i uh i was lucky in that we kind of had a token do per per class and it was an outstanding uh st paul residency very well known for training excellent family docs and so uh, could it, i ask you dr capistrant so yeah did you go into family medicine rather than OMM because of the example of this physician that you had worked with and that your father knew? At that time, I went into family medicine because I had the misconception that I had to be in a big town to do OMM. And I, I felt okay. like if I was going to do OMM, which I, I considered, I would have to be in a fairly significant size, like metropolitan area. And I, I had no interest in that. I wanted to be in a small town. Um, small to medium town, you know, I didn't want to be mm -hmm. in the metropolitan areas. So that was my push. Plus, I, I really enjoyed OB. I did uh, about I 600 deliveries through my residency and practice. Um, and I really enjoyed that piece of family medicine. Um, to me, that was a great opportunity to connect with patients and their families. And, you know, you see the husband, you see the mom, you see the baby, sure. you end up seeing the grandparents. That was a I really enjoyed that. I hated the call. Every baby <laughs> yeah. 
born in the middle of the night. Um, it's just, you know, I hated that piece. But so I did OB after residency for about three years. Um, but in residency, we had one deal per year. And that became basically the musculoskeletal service. And as an intern, you know, you see a couple patients in a half day and that's, that's your clinical exposure for your continuity clinic. You don't usually have a very full schedule. As an intern, we were seeing routinely eight to 12 patients in a half day. Doing wow. You know, we'd see three or four family medicine and eight OMM. And that, ha- that continued throughout the, uh, the residency. So we got a lot of exposure doing OMM. This was way before the, um, the merger or even yeah. having osteopathic recognized residencies. So it was, it was a great exposure. So, so you were very, practice, very fortunate. 25 percent of my practice what's that so you were very fortunate then to be in an fm residency where you had a lot of exposure to omm because my understanding is that's not very common nowadays in the family medicine residencies yeah you have to look for it you have to find the residencies that have faculty willing to precept Mm -hmm. i think for me the the biggest piece was is we kind of made it necessity for us as DOs mm-hmm. we came in and we basically said we're treating these people are you gonna sh- you're gonna supervise or not and, <laughs> yeah. um like you said it was a different time that we didn't have to have a preceptor for every every single patient and all that um mm-hmm. that came in right after we were done with residency so we basically mandated that we were doing it and we even took a storage room and put one of those old casting tables in there and all the other residents who wanted to, to have, you know, the MD residents wanted to get their patients better, they would send them. And so we just had mm-hmm. tons and tons of patients. And it was great. It was a great experience. You learn from the people ahead of you and you teach the people who are coming behind you and you just get the opportunity to, again, you're seeing the positive effect. I mean, how many diabetic patients can you treat and feel yeah. like you're in a dis- difference. I mean, at least now you got an A1C. Back when I trained, we couldn't even track that. Wow. Uh, you know, that was just coming out. It was just new ideas. And now you can follow that number, but that's still a three months apart. You don't get to see the patient walk out smiling and, you know, less back pain and feeling sure. good. So you had great preceptors. So if I asked you, Dr. Capistran, if you had to do residency again, would you still choose this FM? It almost was like an FM OMM residency combination, or would you choose an OMM strict res- residency, OMM strictly? Yeah, you know, I look at that because for me, having at the time wanting to be more rural, small town, and liking OB, family medicine was an easy choice. Um, knowing what I know about OB now, and that many places you're not even really allowed to do it, I would tend to lean towards o- uh, OMM. NMM. I I think Mm -hmm. where I am now, I would hands down do an NMM residency Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's a lot of work to do all the OB training and all of the family medicine training. And Mm -hmm. for me, you know, I was glad I used it while I did. But now you look back at, you know, every third night call for three years. That's uh, that's a lot for your OB experience to be put on shelf after a couple of years. Yeah, took some time off your your life there. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and hair off the hairline. I think. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot so, of um, a lot of the uh, the OB experience does make you better equipped to treat pregnant women in mm-hmm. you know with OMM because you understand the process a lot more. Um, sure. So getting good exposure in OB, I would actually encourage anybody doing. OMM, NMM, and wanting to be, um, you know, like focused on that specifically, spend as much time as they can in the OB floors. And because you're, it's a huge population of people that need treatment. When I was a resident, I did a project and basically it was a review of the literature of what do we tell pregnant women with back pain? And that, that, that literature showed that OB surgeons were the worst and they just said, deal with it. You're pregnant. Family docs and nurse practitioner or nurse midwives were about the same. And they said, just deal with it. Almost no one gave them opportunities or solutions that were helpful other than maybe PT referral and narcotics back then. And that was all they could do. And now, you know, knowing 
how powerful OMM is for uh, pregnant women. It's it's the easiest population to treat, in my opinion. Um, sure. It 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 was just it's get that exposure and you can you can build a practice with a lot of pregnant people um, that could, will help drive your your practice growth. Sure. And so while you were in Fairbanks, you were working at the urgent care at First Care. Yeah. And how did you make that transition care. to OMM yeah, full time? I started time? at an urgent care and then I um, transferred to the TVC Tanana Valley Clinic uh, Foundation Health Partners Urgent Care. And within a short period of time, because of my uh, business administration master's degree from Des Moines, they asked me to run the urgent care. For about seven and a half years, I ran the urgent care, uh, rockin', hoppin' urgent care that was super productive, um, really well, well-functioning place at ultrasound CT lab. So it really operated as kind of a step-down ER. And I... I basically worked myself to exhaustion. Normal doc would work 12 shifts a month. I worked like 17 that whole time. Mm. Um, Super busy practice. During that time, it was in about 2005, I I started to get tennis elbow. And that tennis elbow lasted for two years. And it was... How did you get that, do you think? So I was on a snow machine packing... uh, dog trails for our sled dog team and uh it was two days after i did that i was fine and then that second day afterwards i i could hardly function and move my arms and i showed up at a conference in anchorage and they had dr topaldus had just left and uh he he taught a course and then there was the regular cme course afterwards kind of like we still do these days for a lot of the Mm -hmm. state associations and he uh, he had just showed these guys all the model, and this was, I think, his second time to no, it was his third time to Alaska. And these guys saw me standing in the back of the room, and they got all excited, and they're like, "Yeah, what's wrong with you?" And I'm like, "Well, I got tennis elbow." And they're like, "Oh yeah, we know what that is. We know how to treat that." I'm like, "Well, yeah, every medical person knows how to treat that." <laughs> and they were like, "No, no, no." From cemented. And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> and four guys grabbed me and pinned me down and started to treat me and tears were shooting out of my eyes because back then Dr. Paulus had one pressure and that was maximum pressure. <laughs> I tell you, it was like, I got the tar kicked out of me for about, felt like an hour, but it was probably five minutes. And they're like, okay, how is it now? How is it now? And I'm like, it hurts like hell. What's it, what did you guys just do? And they're like, no, come on, tell us, move it. How does it feel? I was like, I can't, I can't even think. I went back to my hotel room. They said, drink water, ice it, no heat. Next morning I came down and it was two years that I had had this elbow pain, had seen physical therapists, had orthopedists and injections and pills and everything. And my elbow pain was gone. Wow. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. I've done OMM for a bunch of years. I've enjoyed OMM as, as a big part of my practice. And I've never heard of any of this. Mm-hmm. So I went back to those guys and said, tell me again what the heck you did. And so, so they were told you at me, this conference? Back, you were at the FDM conference at Dr. Topaldos, the founder of FDM. Right was. after he left. So they had just completed okay. it. And I was at the CME, the, the okay. regular Alaskan Osteopathic Association. Got it. CME. Got and so it. I said, okay, guys, tell me what you did. So they went through the model and they told me a bunch of the, you know, the cursory things. And I was like, okay, I think I get that. And I felt it. So I kind of understood it. I went back to my urgent care clinic and I had a couple patients walk in and I was like, well, that's pretty clearly what they said. And one lady had this incision in her lower anterior shin and it healed and it happened three years before. She said when it got cut, stuff squished out of the cut. She should have gone in and got it stitched, but she didn't. And she decided to just let it heal. Since then, she'd been limping. And I'm like, well, you know, they were talking about fascial tears and stuff sticking through fascia. And that all makes sense. And she's telling me that's exactly what happened. I guess it's not a big stretch. And so in, in that clinic, we diagnose half the new cases of cancer in Fairbanks every year. So you're always thinking oh. it's something terrible, like a metastatic bone lesion or whatever. Yeah. So I did an x-ray and that was fine. And then um, the, the lady was sitting there and she limped back from x-ray. And I said, well, that all looks good. I said, you know, there's this thing I just found out about. Do you mind if I try? 
you know, <laughs> I my hurt and, and so I put my finger on the, the wound or right near it. Could feel a little bump. I pushed. Thing squished in. She jumps up off the table, does three laps around the treatment table, and gives me this great big hug and walks out of the room. And wow. I just was left, left there slack <laughs> going, what in the world just happened? Yeah. That happened several times. And I decided, okay, I've got to go to the next course. So I scheduled with Dr. Topolis's next course in Hawaii in August of that year. And it was, um, it was 2006. And uh, it was the, I think it would have been the second World Congress. I knew nothing about the organization. I knew nothing about all this stuff. So I show up in Hawaii and there's this horrible like depression over the group and I didn't know what was going on. Well, Dr. Topaldus had passed away between the time that he was in Alaska teaching the course that these guys had learned from mm. and this course in Hawaii. So it was a little bit like a, um, a, a wake. Um, sure. All of his students from yeah. Japan and Europe that were, were there and they were mourning the loss of their mentor and they still did a course and I was able to pick up a bunch. And mm-hmm. then I, um, started to get involved with the AFDMA organization. And then I went to a course in San Diego. They asked me to be on the board and I've been on the board ever since. But it was at that time that I said, this stuff is so powerful. This changed people's lives every day in my clinic. There's people who come in with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of pain. And after one or two treatments, it's gone. And every so- day in the clinic, there's somebody like that. So I said, I have to teach this stuff because we had no American teachers at the time. Okay. So when you were at the urgent care doing OMT, you yourself got treated for tennis elbow and you're like, wow, this stuff is miraculous. Then you just started practice. I mean, treating patients using it. Right, using it right in the, in the urgent care. And then did you, did that become your primary modality of how you treated patients or did you continue doing a little bit of counter strain muscle energy? I still do all those things in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like do a bunch of cranial. We do HVLA. I was a Des Moines grad. So HVLA is like our toolkit, uh, muscle energy, <laughs> counter strain. We, we use it all, but yeah. what that began the transition though, in my head, I'm very much a mechanical, um, explain it to me and how the body works kind of person. Yeah. Um, not a touchy feely. I don't really have the, um, don't want to hear about the emotional impact of mm-hmm. it. I, I deal with that, but that's not my jam. Yeah. And so the FDM to me explains so much through tensegrity mm-hmm. and the way the fascial system is causing dysfunction through the tension changes. And I, that has been the last 12 years or whatever it is more than that now. What is 2006 to now? 15 years. Yeah man um (laughs) yeah that's that's the big thing for me that that started the okay i'm starting to see this and understand just what fascia does you know because Mm -hmm. back then fascia we didn't talk about it in omm class we had no courses on it other than fascial unwinding which uh was big viola fryman thing out of san diego Mm -hmm. they didn't talk about tensegrity that came you know, that started to develop in the mid nineties when they started to do more evidence on fascia. And then in the two thousands, you know, they started to get more and more into fascia and the tensegrity. We're now at a point where you can't pick up an exercise magazine without hearing about fascia, but as an osteopath, it really intrigued me. And so I went back as I started to learn more about the FDM and I said, this can't be new. What did, what did still say about fascia? And that's where I was, really blown away because if you if you and and students never have the time to read still and i don't really Mm -hmm. expect them to but what they need to understand is at still understood the model he understand understood fdm he worked on fascia all the time Mm -hmm. there's this gap in our in our history as osteopaths where at least in my training fascia became less important and range of motion and muscle became important and the hvla and um i i just you know fascia wasn't a big deal for me we scraped it off the uh cadaver threw it in the kick bucket and that was the end of it um we we didn't really think much about it but that was that was the thing that kind of 
opened my eyes. And so working in the urgent care, you know, you'd see 10 people who didn't have musculoskeletal pain and you'd see one or two that did. And then, you you know, we see 40 to 50 people in a 12 hour shift. And, you know, maybe that first six months to a year, you'd, you'd do, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, five treatments to 10 treatments. And then what started happening is people were needing to come back in for follow-up and make sure their ankle sprain or their low back pain or their shoulder injury was getting relief. And so I started taking appointments in the walk-in clinic and it was probably a year and I was getting so busy with that, that I, it was disrupting the flow of the first care. And then, then they asked me to be the chief medical officer of the 60 physician group at the time. And I transitioned into that role halftime and halftime in my first care role. And that's when I, I went to only OMM and uh, because it was just so busy. So the practice at first care, well, at the I did it care. out of first care initially, and then they found space for me on our first floor. And then we've been moving ever since because the growth of our department, we currently have six people doing OMM full time. And we could be at eight if we had the space. Um, so we're probably one of the biggest OMM clinics in the country. And we're in a small town of, you know, 300,000, no, 100,000 people max. I mean, that's that's an overstretch. It's probably closer to 85. And how so many my, patients are you guys seeing a week, do you think, on average? Whew, I see about 100 a week. 100 a week and my there's six providers 15 30 60 to 80 i'd say a week um, and do and you have 100 to 125 depends on the week what is so you said you know someone is coming through the clinic every week who has had 10 20 30 years of pain nobody's been able to figure it out they come to you guys you treat them with fdm and they get better do you have like a testimonial offhand of a patient that you treated like that. I'm standing on my computer. Let me just find uh, I've got, I'm just going to go back yesterday or today. I got a, it helps for me to see their picture, their face, their picture. Sure. Sure. Oh, well, I've got, I've got a young athlete. Well, she's thirties. I got a young athlete who is actually uh, qualified for the Olympic trials two years ago in the marathon. Mm-hmm. And uh, she actually ran the Olympic trial injured. And then due to COVID, she came up here and uh, was nursing this hamstring injury that had been going on for. So it must be two years now. And uh, that was pretty much resolved in a treatment. And we have been uh-huh. seeing her since. And she's continuing to run at a super high level. She's no longer uh, at the Olympic trial level because she just is burned out on road running but mm-hmm. she's doing these races and everything else. So that's one that had been around two years. I know there was one wow. earlier that the, the, I got to find them, man. There's just so many of them. It's yeah. almost hard to put your finger on it. There's sure. Um, I had one probably a Monday that was low back pain uh, that had been going on for eight years. Had a started with her, her, the delivery of her child. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw her in follow up on Monday and I said, how'd we do? And she's like, it had been eight years. It was ridiculous. I had been wow. through all these things and, you know, you treated that thing in my low back and my pain is so much better. Um, yeah. And we get, you know, we get a lot of those, the, the longest, I think I had one the other day, a guy remembered he was, his pain started 70 years ago and it was ridiculous before that. The one I always referenced was the uh, uh, 50 years of low back pain that I actually had a PNW student uh, working with me and Mm -hmm. this guy came in and showed a very clear herniated trigger point in the low back. And I put the guy on the table, put him in child pose, helped the student find it. And I said, go ahead and treat it. Student dropped in this giant HTP and the guy sits up, looks like he had been shot and kind of horrified. Yeah. And it didn't resolve. He just kept there with this blank kind of nervous look on his face. Mm -hmm. And, And I was like, are you okay? He's like, give me a minute. And I was like, okay. And I didn't know what happened. Cause you know, when the student treats it, you don't get to feel it. So you don't know what's right. going on. And right. after about 30 seconds, I asked him again, he's like, give me a minute. I'm like, okay. So we're <laughs> standing there. I'm looking at the student. students looking at me and we're kind of scratching our heads and he stands up and he says, 
that pain, I remember the day it happened and it's been there for 50 years. It can't be gone. And this guy is on a chronic narcotic contract has been for 20 years. And he's like, no, it's gone. He said, can I stop my narcotics? You know, at that point, we're like, no, you, you <laughs> have to pay for them. You've been on them a real long time. Yeah. But he was able to get off his narcotics after so many years of that pain just being persistent. Wow. Um, and, and the student did the treatment, which to me continues to this day to be the coolest part of that story. Because you do not have to be an OMM guru to have a positive impact when you're when you're applying OMM in any clinic. Um, we have an, a residency in Anchorage that teaches the MDs and DOs um, OMM and the MDs that graduate from that residency are using it and they're in practice in our family practice department. Mm-hmm. So, so Dr. Capistrant, are you, are you so in love with FDM because of the results that you get over like in your hierarchy of OMM modalities, it seems that FDM is your, is your go-to more so than counter strain or muscle energy or HVLA. Is that fair to say? And if so, why is that because of the immediate results that you get? So I think the, the big, biggest differentiation is to me, FDM is a model of thinking and all of those other things are a modality. And so I'm using all of those other things in the FDM model. So I use counter strain and I use, um, geez, facilitated positional release, and BLT, but it's always in the framework of the model. And so that to me is what the big change was in how I practiced OMM, because I now had a framework that tied everything together. To me, counter strain works better when I have the FDM in my mind. There's a few specific techniques like herniated trigger point and trigger band and continuum distortion Mm -hmm. that fit very firmly in an FDM modality. And Mm -hmm. in Europe, they actually call it Topaldus technique. So they've given it like, you know, instead of saying muscle energy, I'm using Topaldus technique. Mm -hmm. We don't really push that in this country, but I think it would help explain that the model is just a conceptual envelope that everything fits into and that's why i think the osteopathic world doesn't need to be threatened by the fdm world because all fdm does is explains the um like counter strain more clearly for so many people um dr mm-hmm. t tamble millicene t tamble who is the president of the cranial academy uh when i was lecturing at pnwu after the third module, she raised her hand and she said, you understand that FDM completely explains cranial osteopathy. And I had no idea what the hell she was talking about. I was like, wow. yeah. I was not doing much cranial at that time. Mm-hmm. When she tutored me and she took the opportunity to demonstrate what she was talking about, she would actually save patients. I'd come down to Yakima where I was a regional dean. And I would treat patients with her, but I always thought she was going to have HTPs and trigger bands for me to treat. And it wasn't. She wanted me to do cranial on patients using the FDM as my guide, as my way of thinking. And the cranial treatments were super powerful and very short. They were like five minutes long. And so that was her. That's that's really some of the some of those little aha moments when you're Mm -hmm. treating somebody and you realize, well, I just did, you know facilitated positional release but really i'm folding and i'm you know treating a trigger band under compression okay yeah i get that mm-hmm. uh, I see. all of that so to me it's it's not about oh fdm is the best and that's what i want to do it's just fdm helps me explain and navigate what's going on in people and why their tension and the tensegrity is screwed up in their body and they can't heal if I can mm-hmm. understand it, I can then apply any of the techniques. Um, some people don't like doing certain techniques. You know, some people don't like HVLA, but they still make great osteopaths. Um, sure. Some people don't like FDM, but they're still good at osteopaths. To me, there's FDM techniques, and then there's the FDM model. And the part that I think every osteopathic medical student should learn is the model. Um, because if you understand as a neurosurgeon that you're, you're mucking around in the brain, but that fascial covering as you come out 
and repair the tissues could have an implication on how they heal or an orthopedic surgeon or an ophthalmologist. All of these specialties need to understand the importance and what can happen in the soft tissue. For sure. You know, in our world, if it, if, if the traditional description doesn't explain it, then it's fascial. And if the students of medicine don't understand that there's, you're going to encounter so many things in your practice that don't fit the box. You're going to be sitting there scratching your head going, I have no idea what that is. And the FDM gives you a whole bunch more, a bigger box. You know, you got a lot more things to explain. Had a lady today who came in and they, they had done all of these different things. They had done PT and acupuncture and she had imaging and she'd seen ortho and neurosurgery and they tell me everything's fine. And she's now 36 weeks pregnant and she was seeing one of my partners and he's out of town. So I'm seeing her now. And she says, I am so much better than I was. Um, my pain started 10 years ago. And this is the first time I saw her today. We got her a bunch of relief and she's like, yeah, I know that when I'm done with this pregnancy, you guys are going to keep getting me better. And there had been nothing to explain my pain. If, if you can't explain the pain, then FDM is often a big piece of it. Sure. And so when you talk about FDM and a model of FDM, I think we should talk about your book, the philosophy, or it's called the, the fascial distortion model, philosophy and principles, clinical applications. Is that what you're trying to get out to the medical community is FDM as a model? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, so previous work that has been written about FDM was was not very focused on um, techniques. Like they didn't have pathways and uh, like the trigger band pathways and all that identified. Part of the big fear was is that somebody's going to pick up the book and try to start using it. Um, and the issue with FDM and why we think the courses are so much value is you got to emphasize so much of it as being a clinical tool and you can't, you can't cram on somebody's calf pain and not consider for a moment that it could be a DVT, you know, either it's a medical model. And so this book was, uh, Dr. Harar was approached by, um, Handspring Publishing, to write this. And then he asked me as the American um, U.S. side and the lead instructor in the U.S. at the time to be contributing because every time we get a new instructor, we all bring our um, our ideas to the table. Mm-hmm. And those ideas change the model a little bit. And it's not a bad thing, but we want the people who are coming into it to see the original um, as close to what we can get it to and and show what Dr. Topaldis had done. Now, Dr. Topaldis's textbook is kind of available, but it had been, been rewritten by a chiropractic group. And frankly, when I opened it up and on the internet and I was able to see a few pictures, you could only see like three or four pictures, but the, tr- the treatments they were demonstrating, sorry about that, demonstrate and were completely wrong. They, they were not right. Um, so yeah, it's this, this book is designed to accompany the modules so that if you come into a module and you're taking notes, we've never really had good handouts in this country. Um, Mm -hmm. and so this is kind of like that, that text to find, um, all of the, uh, opportunities for, um, to take notes, to keep pictures in mind, to add to it, all of that kind of thing. So it, the book is only for people who take the modules then? No, anybody can get it, but it's really designed to be that for in the U.S. It's designed to accompany that and be a tool for practitioners. You know, if you've already taken the module, it's a great tool to have because it helps tickle the brain. In Europe, it's it's also being hopeful that it's going to guide the, you know, the the practitioners there back to a more foundational um uh, teachings because Dr. Harar was the original instructor in Europe and now there's over 24. Um, we have currently six with two more taking the, um, the, uh, instructor exam this weekend. And so each time you add different experiences to it, you can morph that, that model a little bit if you're not going back to your fundamentals. 
and not that we don't want the model to grow and adapt to new information, but the the model as itself, it has kind of a core principles that are we believe are fairly foundational and that need to be passed on. We don't want to lose mm-hmm. some of that information. Sure. And so if someone does want to buy this book, where can they get it? it I think it's on Amazon, but it's also probably best through Handspring Publishing, which is based out of Scotland. Okay. Yeah, they're, 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 the, they're the big vendor at uh, one of the big vendors at the AAO Convocation. They're there every year. They, they have a wonderful selection. Now, I suppose I got to give a disclosure that we published it through them. And eventually I would see some sort of royalty check. But as an F, yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm not really found. But, yeah. uh, but they, they focus on manual therapy. So they're the people who will have like fascial stretch. And I can look at my, my uh, bookshelf here and just see some. They, they have so many of the good ones that are available um, on fascia and soft tissue and osteopathy. And, um, you know, they, they have a lot of that market. That's kind of their thing. That's what they want to do. Um, they do yoga and dry needling and massage, all these things. And then also as, as far as treating with FDM, it's not only physicians who treat with FDM. It's also physical therapists, for example. Yeah. And uh, in our courses, we'll train PAs, NPs, um, physicians, MDDO, P, uh, DPTs, PTs, occupational therapy. We don't usually train massage therapy. We train athletic trainers. Um, rolfers will train. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reason for the massage therapist is it's usually a little bit lower level licensing and since it is kind of an aggressive model, you want to make sure your liability and everything is covered as a practitioner. And just mm-hmm. most most massage therapists, while they completely understand the model and can use it very effectively in their practice, but only the pieces within their scope of practice. Sure. Um, so, like, they probably shouldn't be her- treating herniated trigger points, but man, they can, they can treat trigger bands and foldings and everything else. And if they understand it, then they're able to, then they're able to use it. So we, we, while we don't offer courses in it, uh, I think the chiropractic group will to the massage therapist, but athletic trainers, I was able to uh, work with one of the pro baseball teams and the athletic trainers and the physical therapists, they work closely to keep these pro teams on, uh, on their feet and functioning. Mm-hmm. They love it. They love it. Athletic yeah. trainers use it all the time in, in sports. That's phenomenal and very exciting. Um, in the clinic as well, you you got a new toy, I understand, to help treat patients with all kinds of pain, low back pain, any kind of back pain, fascial pain, and that's the, the COX-8 table. Can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Capistrant? So I was at a, a course in, um, where were we, Sacramento, and we had a couple chiropractors in the room because we will train chiropractors too. And usually when a chiropractor comes to one of our courses versus the chiropractic group um, that also teaches, their mind is pretty open and they're ready for the next piece. And this guy was awesome. And he came up to me after we were, we were doing the axial spine module, module two. And he said, you know, I, I'm getting the foldings of the spine. I understand it. But have you ever seen this table? I was like, no, tell me about it. And he's like, I think what this table is doing is treating foldings. And um, so it's a traction table. So it would be treating unfolding distortions. And so he shows me some video of this thing. And I'm like, well, that's fascinating. It also has the ability to articulate it like the waistline. So you can, it's called a flexion distraction table. So you can flex them at the waist, side bend them, and then you can apply traction. And it is like, ridiculous um how effective it can be at changing the posture and the position for using fdm just for treating htps in the low back that has been that was exciting but then the uh the cox table is created by dr cox who's a chiropractor who's done an extensive amount of research on traction And so traction therapy is not something we had available at our clinic previously, but even the MD world has seen the literature and appreciates that traction could be helpful. Um, So I started, uh, you know, the, the, the table comes with a 
bunch of courses and videos and I watched all that. And I was like, well, that makes sense. Let's try using it for that. And so we had some patients come in with radicular type pains and we talked to them about the traction table. And when you combine the traction idea with the FDM, you understand that this should never hurt and it should um, improve things because you're treating an unfolding. And so Mm -hmm. the first few patients with radicular pain, low back pain, we treated and, uh, you know, it feels good on the table to get up. You know what? It's a little bit better. And uh, one or two treatments and their radicular symptoms are gone. You know, they start with straight leg positive and it's just it's kind of mind blowing when you see it. And frankly, I wanted this table for my back. Um, I had a, a disc that I knew would benefit from this mm-hmm. traction treatment. So I was like, I got to get them to get this because I think it's going to help a lot of people. Sure. Well, over the last year, I have three cases that I pulled together for the students who were up here uh, last month. But I have MRI demonstrated giant discs that when I saw them, I immediately referred them to neurosurgery. Um, mm-hmm. So I see the patient. They have pain. It's ridiculous. Uh, significant enough for me to say you need an MRI. I treat them anyways, because we want to be able to try to relieve the stress on that disc. And sometimes that's enough to give them relief. So we treat them with manual treatment and then we put them on the traction table. I saw both of them back and they were in no pain. And then I got their MRI results, which shows this giant disc sticking in the fragment, you know, not a fragment, but the disc sticking in the foramina. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, Whoa, because the one lady I saw her results, referred her to the neurosurgery, and before I could see her back, neurosurgery had gotten in and started talking about surgery. And so then she comes to me, and she's like, they're talking about surgery. I hadn't really even had a full chance to go over the MRI with her yet, because neurosurgery never gets anybody in that fast. And yeah. and she, she was like, yeah, he told me all about surgery, but I looked at him and said, I don't have any pain. And the guy's like, how's that possible? And then she said, Dr. Capistrant treated me. He did the whole, that's not possible kind of thing. And uh, um, yeah, she still doesn't have pain and she probably won't end up having surgery. I've got three of those cases, one mid thoracic and two um, low back ones. And the lady who didn't have any pain, the one I was referencing, she actually has a cyst back there at the same place as the... um, the herniated disc. So it's, it's striking to me that not just a disc can get improvement, but that cystic structure, which usually doesn't change with mm-hmm. something like traction, we took enough pressure off and she was fine. Wow. So, so the patient is lying down prone. They're on the table. You apply a little bit of traction to their lower extremities. And yeah. So you-, you, you, can, you test it by placing your thenar eminence on each lumbar vertebra give them a little traction, make sure there's no pain. If there's pain, it's not going to be the right modality. And then you find the level that you believe that the symptoms are generating from, and you strap them in with a a waistband. Mm -hmm. And then you can apply up to two and a half inches of traction. And I'll tell you, most people, two, two and a half, it's not that much. It sounds dramatic, but I think most of it's taken up with tissue creep and everything else before it really gets to the spine. And then I, uh, for the traction treatment, I plug them in for 10 minutes and let it go and then come back in and see how they're doing. Uh, they, they don't have to be prone. It's interesting because they can lie on their side. Okay. Um, for some people, you just can't. I had an obese gentleman in the other day who could not lay on his stomach. He said, my belly is just too big. I'm short of breath. I said, okay, flip over, be on your back. I've also treated a pregnant woman with a herniated disc on the traction table. Um, you don't strap them in because it's going across their belly. Um, but yeah, you can use sideline, you can use, um, prone supine. It's, uh, it's been one of those things that I think the osteopathic profession could benefit from taking a hard look at because the, the number of radicular pain patients that, that seems discogenic that ha- and has been proven to be discogenic in many cases, their pain goes away. And what I love is when you don't need to do the MRI because the pain's gone. Sure. Cause now they don't even know they had a disc. Now they don't have that lingering in the back of their mind that someday they're going to need a procedure um, because their pain's gone. And we all know you, if you can get their pain to go away, many of those discs will resolve. It's really interesting and fascinating. So 
when you talk about looking at the patient and treating them in the fascial distortion model, here you're treating a folding distortion and you are unfolding them with traction, unfo unfolding the fascial distortion. Is that right. correct? Yep. And sometimes there's trigger bands. Sometimes there's herniated trigger points that are contributing. Um, the, the idea in the chiropractic world and the traction world is that if you take your take a sponge and you imagine that sponge is the disc and you squeeze the sponge out and you stick it in water and you let that sponge swell up with water and you repeatedly do that. So if you've got a disc with a, or a sponge that's got a little protrusion off the side that's in a place it shouldn't be, that rhythmic squeezing and, you know, compression and expansion, compression, expansion, you actually suck that disc back into its um, original place. And you can actually pull those discs back out. So it's like that's that's my vision of what they're trying to explain is it's a mm -hmm. mechanical decompression of the disc space. Um, and it's it is remarkable. It's been one of those fun things to explore and see. Because I know there's so many people that I didn't, you know, I would usually send a disc that is ridiculous and, you know, got a pressure down the leg or numbness into the foot. Mm -hmm. Usually start with pain clinic and get an injection, see if that helps. And if it doesn't resolve it, you send them to the operating room. And there's sure. there's a number of people that don't even they don't even end up in the pain clinic anymore. So how do you know how much to flex the patient at the waist if they're lying down prone and side bend them? Is that all based on ridiculous symptoms or pain? Or uh, for me, a lot of it's feel. I mean, when you put your hand on, that's why I think in the hands of a skilled osteopath who can palpate, when you put your hand on somebody's back who's in pain and you move them in a position that gives them relief, so you get feedback from the patient, but then you also feel the muscles and the tension relax you can lock it in in that position, and then you contraction them. Usually, they 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 aren't side bent much, um, mm -hmm. but the flexion part uh, that that has been the piece the, that you modulate the most to get the best relief. So they can be partly flexed. Uh, usually, it's I would say let's ten to fifteen degrees, mm -hmm. and it the flexion doesn't go much more than that. Um, it's this free floating flexion thing that you control. And then when you find where the right amount of tension is, you lock it in place. I see. And you can also, I saw, apply traction to the cervical spine as well. Yeah, it's been equally as effective up there, in my opinion. Um, you get translation, you get uh, rotation, you get flexion extension, and you can position them right into the position of, of where you feel like they need to be tractioned. That's been really good for cervical radicular issues. Um, Dr. Cox actually teaches a whole bunch of courses, but interestingly, even though his grandfather, I believe, was an osteopath, he won't teach osteopaths. Um, not sure why, um, huh. but I honestly don't think an osteopath needs much more than what comes with the table, because if you're thinking it through, you're going to be able to figure out what the modality is. Um, interestingly, I like it for low back patients who are obese, because I can't move their lower half in any way, shape, or form that I can with the table. The table has like a hydraulic mechanism that you can add tension to it. And so it will, I can lift, you know, 200 pounds of legs with my index finger because it's now pivoting around and moving um, on this support system. So that's been really nice. The other thing about the cervical piece that is fascinating is very often, if you think about how we usually treat cervical pain, they're usually on their back. Um, mm -hmm. your head, you're, you're seated at the head of the table, their hands are, or head is resting in your hands, you're palpating segmental dysfunction. And if you do the FDM, you're finding CDs and HTPs and trigger bands. Well, those are really hard to treat when they're on their back. You can mm -hmm. try turning them, you know, side to side or whatever, or lay them on their stomach. But when they're on their, on the flexion distraction table and you you have this great control of their head because it's all in this smooth fluid mechanical movement of their head they can just relax their head you side bend them you flex them you you know you um, translate and you find that you can get your finger in a place your thumb for treating an fdm in a place that you weren't able to get when they were laying on their back 
And that's, that's been very helpful at identifying like continuum distortions in between cervical vertebrae that are the main cause or even HCPs up there. So what would you say to somebody who's like, well, Dr. Capistrant, when I'm doing like cervical range of motion, as I'm turning, rotating my patient to the left and to the right and flexing them and extending them, I'm getting feedback on how the tissue feels. If I put them into a machine and strap them down and, you know, I'm not getting that sensory feedback to, to my hands. Yeah. So you start without them strapped in. So they're just laying on this thing with their face on the pillow and you're still palpating. You still get all the same feedback. That's the beauty of it. Um, a lot of it is, I'd say probably 90% of it is still palpation driven, at least in the cervical spine, because you're, you know, as you're palpating and they're moving, you're getting all the same feedback that you felt when they were in your hands. It's just now they're face down and then mm-hmm. you can decide whether or not to traction them. Because again, because it's an unfolding, it should never hurt, which is a beautiful thing about the machine is it doesn't hurt. So if it hurts, you stop the machine. You don't keep going. Some yeah. of the chiropractors don't have this philosophy and they will, they will hurt people because they're trying to treat a refolding injury with traction, which is mm-hmm. the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. The other nice thing about this table, uh, it's purely a, a financial piece for the patient is because many chiropractors have these high tech traction tables that they charge like $6,000 for a 12 week session. Um, and it's cash up front. Nobody covers it insurance wise. And when we bill our traction table, they charge 54 bucks. And so wow. a patient can come in and I'll have them sign a waiver. Cause you never know if their insurance is going to cover it, but you can't even fill up a truck's gas tank right now for 54 bucks. Right. So if, if, if you tell them, hey, this, we're going to try this. I think it'll help you. If it's, if it's painful, we're going to stop. And obviously, I wouldn't charge them. And mm-hmm. they get relief. What I've done, because I've seen so many of our patients where the traction is the thing. You know, in OMM, we, we see them for a patient visit. We see them for treatment. And then you would add on a traction charge. Well, because for some of these patients, it's the right thing. We'll actually let them just schedule for a traction table only visit. And so I walk in the room, I put them on the table, get them set up because I don't trust anybody else to put them on the table. That's kind of my job, but I'm not charging them an office visit because I'm not really evaluating them for any of that stuff. I'm not doing any other OMT. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the traction table visit and, you know, in our world, how often do we see somebody more than once a week, right? It's kind of frowned on, but I can have a patient come in three times a week for traction and, you know, total bill will be 160 bucks. And, you know, that's, that's a legitimate medical treatment at a reasonable price with outstanding results. And to me, that's what it's all about, you know, for, for those patients, when my, when my foot went completely numb and I was still seeing patients, I was able to do traction like four days in a row and I haven't had much of an issue since. Yeah. So for those people who need the traction, why not just give them the traction? Sure. And, you know, if that does you know, allow that disc to go back into its place by relieving the tension in the, in the tissue there in the fascia, you know, you're potentially saving them from thousands and thousands of dollars they would spend on surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And then all of the aftermath from the surgery, right? And the aftermath. Sure. All of the, all of the lumbar fusions and discectomies, they all predict you're going to need a future surgery. You know, and in my mind, how much of that, when the surgeon tells you, okay, we fuse this one, you're probably going to need the one above it or below it in the future. You just did a negative enforcement that that patient knows now when I get back pain again, that's the solution. And so we have tons of people who come in and they're like, hey, I've got back pain and my surgeon said I'm going to need a fusion. And until you send them to surgery, they're not going to listen to half of what you say because they think they need surgery. It's mm-hmm. called a no effect. It's the negative impact of words. So when the surgeon says you're always going to have pain after the surgery, you tend to believe them. Um, and, you know, so you got to be really careful with your word choice, but just keeping them away from the surgery in the first place prevents a lot of the unfortunate outcomes. You know, like we had a guy, gosh, I'd never seen this before, but they did a decompression of his back and he was paralyzed for two weeks in the hospital. Oh, wow. 
and he has continued to have excruciating pelvic and perineal pain uh, to the point that the guy is like dang near disabled. And yeah, it is a very rare occurrence, but what if you're that guy, you know, what if we could have helped him before he had his surgery and prevented all that? Sure. Have you had any negative outcomes with the traction table yourself? Um, you know, they, just some people say, Oop, doesn't feel good. And we stop. There's been no, okay. no, like, Oh, cripes. It's worse. Nothing like that. Because I think the, and this is where I think the, the model is so important. You know, you see the teeter hang up guy on TV um, mm-hmm. and everybody should get an inversion table according to them. Right. Yeah. Well, we use, we used to use the teeter tables in our courses and we still get them sometimes, but we, we used to have a relationship where they'd ship us a table for a course for free and then we could sell it at a little bit of a discount to the to the somebody in the area and uh, we never made any money off of it or anything but we just liked their tables they were solid and mm-hmm. i actually called the owner and i said you want to see fewer of your tables on craigslist only sell them to people who have unfolding symptoms and feel like unfolding or inverting would feel good and you will have you will have more sales and less of them being sold on the, you know, on the market uh, off market on the Craigslist or whatever. He's like, well, what do you mean? So I sent him a book and everything else, but obviously it's not going to change his marketing because he's got great marketing. But I honestly think that if he would target only the people who it feels good to, then they would say, Oh yeah, no inversion. I hate that. Well, don't do it then that don't buy this thing. This is bad for you. And that's a big piece with the inversion or the, Cox table is um, if this, you know, it's an expensive table, but if it works for you, it works for you. The thing I like about it over inversion is if you've ever tried inversion, you're never completely relaxed. You always got to have a little bit of tension in your body. We all can relax on either our stomach or back. Usually you can find that position of relaxation, which allows the traction to be way more effective than just inverting. Sure. If I an, well, I mean, we have an inversion table here too. And before we could afford to have one of these tables, we, we actually, um, we use the inversion table a lot, uh, mm-hmm. from, from a business perspective, it's been really nice. Even at that low charge, the table yeah. they feel with just me using it. Cause none of the other providers in the clinic really use it because of its location and accessibility. Mm-hmm. It'll be paid off in a year. You're kidding me. Yeah, no. So it, wow. we bought it with a five-year depreciation kind of idea, like most medical equipment. But by me doing maybe, I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's a couple a day or five a week or something like that. Wow. It'll it'll pay off. They ran the numbers in after eight months, and they predicted that's even with COVID in there. Um, yeah. So I think uh, if a clinic is interested in a table like that, you know everybody's got to do their due diligence financially and see what's allowable charges and all that stuff. But you know, it's going to be paid off well within five years if you're using the thing. Sure. Well, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Capistrand. We've gone for a little over an hour now and I don't want to take up more of your time. It's been an awesome conversation. Just hearing your trajectory from a pre-med to medical school to family medicine, working with an osteopathic physician who was friends with your dad, who loved OMT, and then into family medicine practice and full-time OMM, um, FDM um, practice. It's been very inspiring for me. I mean, you you taught me the two years I was up in Fairbanks, so I appreciate that. And um, um, yeah, thanks for what you're doing and promoting the fascial distortion model in the medical field. And I think you're you're doing phenomenal work. So thank you. Yeah. Well, and thank you. I, I think this would be good to, if, if you're an osteopathic medical student and you know, other osteopath students that maybe are in that same situation where you don't see a lot of clinical um, exposure, make sure you share the podcast links with others, because, you know, I'm already thinking of several schools uh, that I know that, you know, it would be great to have the link and be able to, when I'm there teaching, you know, say, Hey, you guys really should check this out because to me, it honestly is that early exposure to success, whether it's your own, your personal treatment, or you see somebody get relief. 
that's when you just go, okay, wait a minute. This isn't a bunch of BS. I, I should actually pay attention to this. It's hard when you're immersed in that, that uh, intense science of the first two years of med school to really put much credibility in OMM. I mean, that's, if you can't mm-hmm. face that reality as an OMM practitioner, that OMM is a little bit more esoteric, a little bit less hard, hard science-based, but if you see the power of it, you get to a point where you're like, you know what? I can't explain everything in life, but I can see the results and that helps. So I think getting first and second year students exposed to success, um, seeing the success, seeing those treatments. That's why I think it's such an important thing to have a clinic at all the undergraduate osteopathic medical schools. Uh, we had to, at Des Moines, we had to take rotations through there and we stood in the corner and watched them treat. And you got to see people's response. And I think that is invaluable for understanding the practice. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And here at Michigan State University, we have a student-led OMM clinic every month and a student-led sports medicine clinic. So the students in their first and second years, you know, have that exposure and... and... There's nothing that beats that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Kapuschan. I hope we can have you on again sometime. Yep. I and definitely he, still want to hear about how you made it up to Alaska at some point. Yeah, that, um, that is a story in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you have a great rest of your day. And thank we'll you. talk to you soon. Okay. Right. Thank you. I hope you all learned something about FDM. I sure did. Our body is more than just bones, muscles, and ligaments, and of course, our vital organs. There is fascia from our head to our toes. And when we start adding this to our understanding of our patient's pain, we begin looking at them through the lens of the fascial distortion model. Tensegrity of the fascia is a real thing. See you all in the next episode.